Welcome to Verso, a new arts and culture podcast from Philips. I'm your host, Beth Lissick. This episode of the podcast is going to be a little different as I close out this series of conversations with a little bit of personal reflection. It's been an incredible range of guests, art specialists and experts, a father-son team of data scientists, a master jeweler, an auctioneer and global authority on watches, chair people and senior advisors, just big Zoom energy for sure. We covered a lot of ground. One of the most challenging parts, though, was figuring out how to edit these hour-long conversations down to the 20-minute episodes. So thank you, Dia Felix and Ava Mendoza, for your work on that. When I got asked to do this, I knew a little bit about the art world. I like art, of course. I live in New York. I go to galleries and museums. I have a lot of friends who are artists. But I knew nothing about the auction world. I wasn't even sure what Phillips was all about. I had passed their showroom on the Upper East Side on my frequent walks through the neighborhood during this time I had a part-time job as an assistant of sorts, a companion, an aide, to a wealthy man, an art collector, who had dementia, Bill. Bill passed away last fall, but he had quite a collection, including a Matisse cutout and a Toulouse-Lautrec and a Murakami, and also a big head, tiny body caricature of me made in Central Park a few weeks after he was released from the psychiatric ward when I was trying to make him laugh. Bill and I went to all the museums constantly on rotation, though in his last years, he was mostly interested in heading straight to the donor wall to make sure his name was still there. But the day we were passing by Phillips when he wanted to go in was a hard day, and he couldn't always be trusted to keep his hands and feet to himself. Uh, There was once an incident at the Guggenheim where he reacted very strongly to someone invading his personal space, he thought. So go ahead and imagine a slow speed chase on the museum's iconic circular ramp as not just security, but police closed in on one of the gold Rolex patrons. So I just wasn't feeling gutsy enough that day to bring Bill somewhere new. I didn't know if Phillips was like a regular gallery and we could just walk in, or do you have to be a client to go there? I had no idea how an auction house operated. So now I've finally gotten inside Phillips, virtually, to do this podcast. I still haven't been inside the building since this whole podcast series has happened during COVID times. But through the guests, I've gotten a much better handle on this world and had the opportunity to see all the reacting and shifting and navigating during this past year. The guest list was long and illustrious, mostly Phillips people, but some outside guests too. There was Katya, the award-winning arts journalist, who fell in love with art in the basement of the Hermitage. There were weekly program on art history, and you started in the basement of the Hermitage with the antiquities, and then you ended up years later up on the top floor with the Matisse dancers. There was Cheyenne, chairwoman of Phillips, and the first person in the auction business to work directly with a living blue chip artist on the secondary market. This was, I make the objects, I take them to auction, and anybody who wants to buy a bid can. There's Kelly Traster, longtime lover of prints and multiples, who still dreams of a carriage ride with Picasso. Would he respond to personal questions? Does he only want to talk to somebody who's a certain name? 
Sean Lean, master jeweler and once collaborator with Lee McQueen, who you and I might know as Alexander McQueen. You can take a subject matter such as snow or ice or the delicate wings of a butterfly and you can capture that beauty forever with gemstones or with metal. And they had a few surprising things to say about the art business in the time of COVID. Earrings, earrings are doing very well at the moment because of all the Zoom calls. We as auctioneers adapted immediately and used the online platforms. And what even surprised me more is the clients all adapted. They all bid online. I felt that, that there's been more eagerness and more passion even during the lockdown. I got pictures from people gathering with a bowl of popcorn on a Saturday on a sofa watching three hours of auction. And looking forward to what's next. I think now is a perfect time when we're going to have people wanting to be individuals again. You know, they they want to be seen for themselves and be their own person. I miss being in the presence of art and physical presence and the energy that it creates, you know, you cannot recreate it in an online world. The future is digital. The future is here now. The pandemic has essentially accelerated the inevitable and brought the future closer to us. And like the popular adage, it's called show business, not show friends. We did get down to the business part of things, the numbers. It was super interesting to learn how things have changed in the last year and how much people desired and continued to buy works of art. Business at Phillips remained pretty brisk. It dipped a bit, but not as much as you'd think. 24 people willing to spend a million dollars for a Rolex in steel, uh, notabene. We've heard about uh, even multi-million dollar transactions going over Instagram. Each time we held an online sale, we were seeing a huge number to the extent of sometimes 50% of the clients who ended up buying in our sales were completely new to Phillips. Bought for $11 million by a client who'd not seen the painting in the original. Buy what you like, what you love, and with money that you can spare. You know, you should buy whatever moves you and hope it's Matthew Wong. And, oh yeah, the artists. There is an artist who seems to be gaining appeal here in Asia called Mr. Doodle. I would love if Louise Bourgeois could meet a Japanese artist who is gaining so much momentum at the moment, Shiharu Shiota. Chabalala Self, an incredible artist who since then made a real spectacular race. But what me and McQueen wanted to do was we wanted to push cultural body adornment to another layer, another level. And you see that a lot in the way Boafo handles some of the bodies of his figures. And I think you also see it a lot with Nicholas Party and Magritte. To been able to work on an installation with Richard Serra for a specific site in the middle of the desert. And there was this memorable quote by David Norman, who is Philip's chairman of the Americas, about his own collection. I just have fun, and sometimes I forget the artist's names because I'm just responding to the object and loving the feeling of sort of bringing it into my home. And that got me thinking, how does art move from the initial vitality of the gesture to the high-stakes world of the auction room? Back to Katja on Matthew Wong. More than 20 million of art of his is sold at auction, but it's only 24 works, so huge prices. 
It's a lot. The pandemic, the business of art, the actual art itself, who becomes a star. And then I hear an interview of Philip's CEO, Ed Dolman, someone I haven't met yet, with Arnold Lehman, Philip's senior advisor and former executive director of the Brooklyn Museum. And Ed says that he thinks the pandemic will make us value quality of life, our health, how money is spent in society, how we support people. He notes how the pandemic has disproportionately affected undervalued people in society who have fewer resources. And perhaps art will be central to the messaging of how society reacts to this. And I find this so hopeful, so uncynical, that I want to talk to him about it. So my producer, Dia, and I chatted, and another Zoom was set up. So I'm thinking about the pandemic's influence on the art world, and I'm just wondering if there's anything at all positive that you see coming out of a really challenging time. Well, I mean, as someone who runs an art business, it's been fascinating, and we've learned a huge amount. Obviously, the devastation of the pandemic has not been great. But as a chance to experiment with ideas that, you know, we had years ago, but never really found the impetus or the environment to implement, uh, it's been great. The art world in my career has evolved so much. I mean, in, when I started, uh, it was a relatively small, elite group of people, essentially based in certain cities in Europe, London and uh, New York in the United States. Um, it was like a, a relatively small club of people collecting fabulous 18th century works of art. The business has since then, over my career, has, has exploded. You know, it's, it's impossible to imagine that only relatively recently, um, the market was opened up to mainland Chinese buyers and relatively, you know, um, short time before that to Russian and Eastern European buyers. You know, so people forget this. It's happened very quickly, but now it's so much part of our lives. And in the meantime, the actual process of auction, what we did didn't really change and didn't really adapt. And so, you know, we had a sneaking feeling that running these very sort of hands-on, hands heavy contact um, events um, supported by catalogues, etc., which has essentially grown from that much smaller business dealing with a much smaller community of people. It was increasingly out of step with the reality of the market we were working in, which is you know, largely driven by Asian East European buyers from all over the world. Right. And this pandemic forced us to remodel the way we 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 reach out to our clients, we market ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. And the frankly, the success, I think, has stunned everybody and at the same time has been terribly reassuring for us going forward now, because I think we really do have some fabulous learning which is going to be holds in good stead going forward and making us a stronger and more profitable company. One of the reasons I was asking this question too is because I heard this really kind of beautiful and complex idea that the pandemic might play a part in how society comes to understand the inequity and the injustice of people who have been 
affected by the pandemic and that that there might be something in the art world that will actually show us and help us through this time. And I was wondering if you could expand on it. Well, I mean, I just think in times of great social disruption, you know, it tends to be an extraordinarily sort of fertile environment for artists to work in because they effectively um, soak up and represent what's happening around them. And with so much happening that's forcing everybody to sort of reprioritize how they live, how they run their businesses, you know, what they want to do with their lives. You know, you only have to think of these large, sort of massive social movements that have been sort of running through at the same time, focused around, you know, diversity, equity and, and inclusion, um, gender rights. You know, all these issues have, have almost been like sort of supercharged as we all sit back thinking about what it is about life that's important. And artists inevitably... Um, you know, we'll be picking up on that. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about the art itself. And when, when I heard you say that, it really made me think that you were talking about poor people, people of color, disenfranchised people. And I just wonder, as a CEO of this international company, do you see it as your role at all to sort of bring uh, bring these social movements into, uh, like, at your level? Yes, I mean, absolutely. And um, I think it is incredibly important for Philips to be as representative of, uh, of the world that we live in as we possibly can be and uh, as inclusive as we can be. And I think... You know, the art world has got a, a a lot of problems to overcome in that respect to try and make what we do inclusive to all peoples that make up our society. I mean, it is, it's a fairly intimidating world to get into. It's pretty elitist. And I think in the past that may have, have led to us, you know, not being as attractive as a place to work and being a little bit sort of one-dimensional in, in you know who we employ and how we how we run our businesses. It's interesting because art is not that right. It, art is people and ideas and passion and all this stuff. So so in a way, I mean, the art world is perfectly poised to be in that space. Yeah, no, I think I, no, I think that's absolutely right. And um, you know, I think it's beholden on us to actively engage and start solving some of these issues and uh you know i think you know the pandemic is, is part of it it's given us all time to reflect and and think about how we want to shape things going forward um but there's the, the but there's no question about it um that that we do need to to create a more diverse and equitable place to work yeah um, no doubt about that it was a great talk that also included how art stars are made and the temporary hanging of the Frick collection at the Met Breuer. And Ed and I were about to sign off. Lovely to meet you, Beth. It's so nice to meet you too, Ed. When my producer, Dia, came on. Ed, do you have a moment more or do you need to jump now? No, no, for time. How do we make some of the things that we've learned, particularly in the DEI space, stick? By the DEI space, she's referring to diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
how do we take those good intentions and like action them? Any thoughts on that? I love that she jumped in with this, the how. I think the really important thing for us to do is to um, actively create as diverse a management team as we can. I think once you've done that, it can stick because, you know, it just becomes part and parcel of your consideration. It is quite obvious to me that it's all about employment. You know, you've got to, to have an employment policy that encourages diversity. And I think until we've managed that, you know, we will continually you know, be challenged by these issues because it's not forefront in our minds. It's not an excuse, but it is easier said than done because there isn't a huge track record of um, racial diversity in the art world. And I think that's been building up recently and we've got to tap into that and make sure that we we sort of use this real sort of expression of interest. I mean, the fabulous success of black artists over the last 18 months, you know, is, is, a, is a tremendous sort of um, foundation stone for us to build on. You know, we have got to do something about and seize this moment. And then he said something that I really loved. What do you think, dear? Dia has been working in the art world for a long time, but only at Phillips for about a year. And this is the CEO, her boss's boss's boss. I like it. I think it's true that we have to start. We can only start where we are. We can only live in reality and start where we are. And I think, um, I think stating an intention is is the the first step. It's the essential first step. And I think that there is. I mean, from my perspective, there is a sincere company-wide intention to move in the direction that you're describing. And I think I think it's the how, you know? I think it's the, okay, we this is our sincere intention. You know, how do we action this? And how do we truly trailblaze? Because as you say, you know, it's it's not a class and race and culturally diverse scene that we're in, right? So we're kind of built, we're building a future, which is, I think, very exciting. And I agree with you about um, staff and particularly staff with power. So management level staff that, that is diverse. Well, I, I think you have, you have to be, you know, you have to have successful sort of role models in place because I think, you know, if you, you know, when you're thinking about entering any sort of career, you like to sort of look at who's been successful in that career and say, well, that could be me. You know, I mean, I could do that. I, that's my world. Yeah, it's very difficult to see in our world. All you see are, are white guys and white women, you know. And, and so you're thinking, well, actually, you know, what are my chances of breaking through into that? And I think it's ridiculous. But, you know, filling those slots at the top are quite difficult because if you look around our world, it's 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 ridiculously lacking in diversity. I have to say, I mean, there is a really genuine commitment to um, to try and solve this problem. I'm glad you asked that, Dia. Being an outsider, just hearing you guys talk about that within your company, we want to create a fantastic environment that is diverse and inclusive, and isn't seen to be elitist and full of barriers to entry. We want to be a good business going forward. We have to get this this issue solved. 
Um, that's the truth. And then we all signed off, and I know it may sound corny, but it made me feel not just hopeful, but excited, like I said, because when I'm able to witness a little bit of progress happening in just the few corners of the world that I have access to, independent literature and film, music, the food world, it makes me think that those things must also be happening in other spaces that I know nothing about. Horse racing, for instance, or what's happening in golf, I don't know, or healthcare, gun control, academia, advertising, I don't know, interior design, cartooning, yoga, anything, everything. So as we step back out into the world, we can think about where the progress is going to be made in the places that we breathe, hopefully soon, without a mask. I have every confidence that the auction world will retain its elegance and excitement and mystery, but here's to it being a little less exclusionary and not as white as a multi-paneled Rauschenberg. Thanks for listening, and thank you for tuning in to Verso. Verso.